Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and we're here every Thursday from 1 to 2 p.m. Mountain, and you can find us online at drpegradio.com. If you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, go to drpegradio.com for the program archives, and if you'd like to purchase a copy of my books, do do something different for a change, and doggy tales, go to drpegradio.com and click on books. Well, in the aftermath of recent school shootings, administrators are reaching out to retired Columbine High School principal, Frank DeAngelis, to tap into what he learned after two assailants killed 12 of his students and a teacher in 1999. I'm blessed to have with me today Mr. Frank DeAngelis, who was principal at Columbine High School from 1996 to 2014. And on the eve of the anniversary of the tragic event that forever changed the way we think about school safety, Frank DeAngelis will share lessons learned and how he remains hopeful even still today. But first, we're brought to you by our sponsor, SSI Guardian, who set the new standard in advanced safety education training and has the only program of its kind with an accredited CEU. To learn more about SSI Guardian, go to SSIGuardian.com and tell them you heard about it on the Living Well with Dr. Pegg show. Well, today's show is pre-recorded, and in the time between when we record and when the show airs, we really never know if there's been any additional violent acts, and that's just the sad reality in which we're living today. But today's show will examine lessons learned from Columbine and provide a message of hope and resilience in the midst of a tragedy. Well, I'm joined by Frank DeAngelis in the studio. Thanks so much, uh, Frank, for being with us today, and welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, and you are a Colorado guy, right? A North Denver guy. Yeah. It's called Highlands now, but okay. North Denver guy. Grew All right. Up, uh, in the Italian part of North Denver. Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, with a name like DeAngelis, right? <laughs> That's, yeah, it's Viva Italiano. <laughs> <laughs> well, April 20th marks the uh, anniversary of the tragedy at Columbine, uh, where you were principal at the time. Um, if you can give us uh, today, I know you've probably talked about it so many times over the years, um, if you can give us a perspective um, of lessons learned um, and helping other schools prevent and recover from such a tragedy, because we're just seeing this happening over and over again, um, give us a kind of a, an overview of what happened that day uh, where you're able now to look through a lens of lessons learned and, and how other schools can prevent this from happening. Right. You know, um, people ask me all the time, did you expect it to happen? And Mm. and I tell people, if you would have asked me 19 years ago, could a Columbine happen at Columbine? I said, no, Mm. it doesn't happen at schools like Columbine High School. You know, a um, large percentage of our kids went on to college, a lot of parental support. I mean, a fantastic high school. Mm -hmm. And I had spent 20 years there prior teaching history and I did some coaching. And so when it happened, it really caught us by surprise. You know, and it's real interesting, prior to Columbine occurring, the only drills we really did to prepare for any type of emergency were fire drills. That's right. And I can't remember the last time kids have been killed or staff members have been killed in the fire. And since that time, uh, we're doing a lot of drills. Mm -hmm. But on that day, it's real interesting when I tell uh, 
audiences where I present what the protocol that was in place. And I was at Columbine, uh, and it was a beautiful Colorado spring day, about 70 degrees. And I didn't start out at Columbine. I was at a function for some of our students that were getting awards by the Chamber of Commerce. But I returned to Columbine at about 11 o'clock, and I was in my office uh, getting ready to go down to lunch duty. And we had two lunches at the time, and they started at 11.15. The other one started after the noon hour. And so I was a little late getting downstairs, but I was talking to a dear friend of mine. He was a teacher there that was on a one-year contract, Kiki Leva, and I was getting ready to offer him a job. And my secretary, Susan White, comes running in, and she said there was a report of gunfire. And the first thing that crossed my mind is this has to be a senior prank. I mean, we're a little over a month away from graduation. I could probably count on two hands in the 20 years that I had been there where we even had a fist fight. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, any thoughts of violence occurring never crossed my mind. And so I ran out of my office, and then my worst nightmare became a reality. Um, I saw a gunman coming towards me. He was about 100 yards away. And it's amazing what I learned later as I went through something referred to as fight, flight, and freeze. Mm-hmm. And everything just slowed down. And I was able to block out the sound of the fire alarm, but I remember the flashing lights. And in my mind, I thought I walked out very calmly. And after talking to people who were eyewitnessing what was happening, they said they ran straight towards a gunfire, and they couldn't understand why until they realized there were about 30 girls that were unaware of what was happening. They were coming out of the locker room to go to a class, a physical education class, so I knew exactly what I had to do. I had to save them. Mm. And then things started happening that... I can't explain. You know, I'm a very devout person of faith, and I attribute some of it to some of the things that transpired afterwards. Uh, But I was coming out of the hallway. The gunman's coming towards us, and I go to get the girls into a safe area, um, and I pull on the door, and it's locked. And so the girls are screaming. I'm trying to keep them calm. Shots are being fired. And I reach in my pocket, and I had a set of 35 keys on a key ring. Reached in my pocket. And the first key I pulled out of my pocket opened the door. Wow. <laughs> and if it didn't, there's a good chance I wouldn't be doing this interview. Mm. And so someone was looking after mm-hmm. me that day. And so I got the girls to a safe place, and I told them I needed to go outside to make sure it was safe to get them outside because we had also received uh, information that there was gun or uh, bombs exploding. Mm-hmm. So I went outside, and at that time, all the Jefferson County police officers and surrounding uh, law enforcement agencies were appearing at Columbine. But they said no one can go back in. They had a protocol called Secure the Perimeter, which I tell people this now, uh, school resource officers, police officers, they just shake their head because on that day, there was actually a school resource officer on campus who was engaged in a firefight with the two killers. And he was given orders not to go into the building Mm -hmm. along with some of the other arriving officers. And so they had to wait until SWAT arrived. Well, unfortunately, by the time SWAT went to their district to get uh, all the stuff they needed, it was about 58 minutes before they entered the building. And as a result of that, you know, 13 were killed. And so now active shooter is the protocol being used. Mm-hmm. And so there are many lessons learned from that. Day. Yeah. I've interviewed a gentleman named Thor Eels, who's over the National Tactical Officers Association, and we've talked about how police tactics, law enforcement tactics, have changed over the years, and especially as a result of Columbine. Uh, first officers on the scene are supposed to go in, uh, and that's why there was controversy surrounding the Parkland, Florida uh, attack at Stoneman Douglas High School. 
Um, we still don't know exactly really what happened there, but we know now that uh, these things unfold very quickly. Um, the Secret Service has a, a recent report saying I think it's 50% uh, are over in five minutes or less. Exactly, and yeah. I think there was just a situation at uh, Great Mills High School mm -hmm. where a school resource officer engaged with the shooter immediately and actually took the shooter out mm -hmm. on that particular day and unfortunately one young lady lost her life mm -hmm. and another was injured but we look closer to home even at Arapahoe High School yes. where the uh, James Engler who was a SRO engaged with the shooter and the shooter ended up taking his own life mm -hmm. and unfortunately Claire Davis lost hers but yes. it's much different I think we all sit back and wonder if that protocol would have been in place at Columbine mm -hmm. that day we more than likely would not have lost the yes. 13. And those, those what if kinds of questions really are very common following a tragedy like this what if we had just done this what if we hadn't done that or, and even what if you hadn't had that key right. so there's some positive what if questions uh, but talk about uh, what recovery was like in the immediate aftermath losing 12 students uh, one teacher um, just a, a tragic uh, tragic thing that we just really hadn't seen in in our generation up until Columbine right. you know and I tell people uh, when I make phone calls to schools or communities that uh, experience something similar, the thing that I give tell them immediately is it's a marathon and not a it's a marathon and not a sprint, and I think that is so important. Mm -hmm. uh, people really want to know when is it going to get back to normal. In what I state, we had to redefine what normal is, mm -hmm. and there's going to be days in which things seem to be going extremely well, and you're saying, "Boy, we're starting to recover," and then something takes place and there's a setback in our own community one of our students who was critically injured Anne Marie Hall Coulter's mom unfortunately took her own life mm -hmm. and so once again we seem to be doing well but then she takes her life and our community is in a state of turmoil and we had two students that were brutally murdered at the uh, subway uh, sandwich shop near Columbine on Valentine's Day of 2000 and then mm -hmm. We had a student, Greg Barnes, who was actually in the classroom with Mr. Sanders, trying to keep him alive until the paramedics came in, and he unfortunately took his life just because mm -hmm. of all the images that he had from Gosh. that day in the classroom. Yes, so. yes. And even, you know, thinking about how law enforcement protocol has changed, even now today we know that when there are um, emergency stop-the-bleed kits in classrooms, that can save a life in freak accidents in the in the shop class let alone a tragic shooting such as this and so the what if thinking what if questions at the time that this happened we had no like you said it's nothing you ever would have dreamed could have happened at your school so we can't use even today's standards to look back and say what if we had to stop the bleed kit because we didn't That's back exactly then right. yeah and so the recovery in the immediate aftermath and uh, is you're, you just never know how, who's going to respond how. Some people might do very well and be very resilient and bounce back, uh, and some may struggle in the immediate days, and that's even normal, and we expect them to recover uh, over the course of a couple weeks. Psychologists give you about four weeks to kind of bounce back from that. Um, but in the subsequent months, when uh, perhaps those who... Uh, are pretty resilient and they bounced back you know the dust has settled talk about uh, what was done to support students and teachers over time who maybe were not bouncing back um, as we would hope uh, after a tragedy like this we were so fortunate to have a lot of support and we had a little over a month until summer break and we could not go back to Columbine High School we had to go to Chatfield High School which mm -hmm. is our sister school to the west of us and we finished the school year there, so we had the summer to kind of 
prepare for the upcoming school year. But when we returned to Columbine in the fall of 1999, we had counselors there, you know, a, a therapist there through the Colorado uh, Organization of uh, Victims Assistant. We had substitute teachers there to help mm. the teachers that might be traumatized during the day of an event that happened. Wow. And we had counselors there, things, you know, that... I was never prepared for as a principal and most administrators, and this is some of the uh, information I share, but things like balloons popping mm-hmm. would cause kids to, you know, dive on the ground or doors slamming. Mm. Uh, teachers had to change their curriculum. Uh, we told teachers that were, would be teaching a World War One or World War Two class if they had any type of soundbite that had gunshots, that would re-traumatize for us, uh, we did not serve Chinese food for the three years that the students were there because that was a meal that the mm-hmm. kids were eating. And uh, we told people they couldn't wear camouflage clothing because that's clothing because that's what the SWAT team members wore. So yeah. things like that, and a lot of it's day by day. Yes, yeah. And you brought up such a key point that people heal differently. Mm-hmm. And we had people that needed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. We had others who felt the sooner we move on to do what we were doing prior, I'm going to help me heal. And then we had some people in between. So trying mm-hmm. to meet the needs of everyone of every, was, grown, was one pretty of the challenging. And so some of those little things, uh, those triggers, balloons popping, camouflage clothing, certain types of movies in a history class. I actually had a student from Columbine. I was teaching at a community college and um, she was there that day and survived uh, and and ended up in my Psych 101 class years later. And I was doing a demonstration um, on fight or flight response, as a matter of fact, you referenced that earlier. And I made a sudden loud noise just to illustrate how your heart will race and you'll have a startle response. Well, she didn't take too well to my demonstration. And after class, she uh, pulled me aside and said, "I'm, I'm a survivor of Columbine. And that kind of, you know, sudden loud noise is very unsettling for me. I've been diagnosed and treated for PTSD. And so if you know in the future of any fire alarms, you know, fire drills, that kind of thing, please give me a heads up because I don't do very well with them. And she said, in fact, I don't do well on rainy days. And I was thinking, I don't recall it raining that day. You, you just said, Frank, that it was a beautiful, sunny Colorado day. So I said, you know, what, how so? And she said, well, they wore trench coats. And somehow in my mind, I associated trench coats with rain. And so even when I hear a rainy forecast the night before, I find myself tensing up. And it was only through counseling that she was able to identify that and articulate it. But there's all those little things that affect each, each person who goes through a tragedy like this. And as, as we're, we're emphasizing, some will do well and bounce back and some will need a little extra support and it's really trying to provide for everything in between. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's um, talk about um, the fact that the two assailants were also Columbine students and uh, we don't talk much about how that feels. You were their principal and they had parents and they had other teachers um, who knew those students and um, it's easy to to, to you know vilify them and yet they were your beloved students you you were Papa D and Mr. D your students affectionately referred to you um, talk about um, what that was like to know this was um, two of our own that's one of the most uh, interesting comments because when I start my presentation I named the 13 and I have pictures of the 13 who lost their lives but I said the thing that makes it so difficult is they were killed by two of my students mm-hmm. 
And I think back to four days prior seeing Klebold uh, was at prom with mm. his girlfriend and four other couples, and they're high-fiving me, and I remember seeing Harris at after prom. And I think the way that they were portrayed by the media, they were portrayed these at-risk goth kids that were out of touch with school. And as their principal, I did not see those mm-hmm. two because I saw kids that were in advanced placement classes. I saw Klebold, who was gifted and talented from the time he was entered elementary school. As a matter of fact, Klebold went with his mom and dad to the University of Arizona because he had been accepted. Mm. And so they were playing this all out. They had this calculated plan that they had devised over a year, and they videotaped everything they were going to do that day. And the thing that was so chilling to me after I watched those videotapes is the last comment Harris made is, it's unfortunate someone didn't find these tapes Mm. before we did what we did. Mm -hmm. But... You know, these were bright, intelligent kids that were involved in school activities and things of this nature, but they just had an evil side to them. Yeah, yeah. And again, in terms of lessons learned and prevention, uh, the Secret Service, FBI, uh, Department of Education are all saying concerning behaviors, um, that things that are recognizable, uh, that someone might be moving on a path to violence are so important to be able to learn to identify and know what to do about it. And so when we see those manifestos and those videos and those photos, we can and should do something about it. Well, I'm speaking with a retired principal of Columbine High School, Mr. Frank DeAngelis, and we'll continue our discussion about lessons learned and how we can still hold on to hope in the midst of tragedy. Stay with us. We'll be back. Threats at our schools and workplace continue at an alarming rate and require an innovative approach to overall institutional safety. A 21st century safe school needs the right training, the right equipment, and the correct action plan to achieve a future-ready, safe learning environment. SSI Guardian's comprehensive, evidence-based solutions and Tier 1 Security Consulting is the only active shooter training in America with an accredited CEU. Don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com. What if a psychologist with years of experience wrote a book revealing secrets that therapists know but usually don't share? And what if that book provided effective strategies for experiencing lasting change? That's exactly what you get with Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark's book, Do Something Different for a Change, an insider's guide to what your therapist knows but may not tell you. Celebrating 10 years in print, this self-help classic shares critical insights to help you understand and overcome the three common barriers to change, heal your emotional pain and emptiness, and strengthen your connection to your true self and others. In the easy-to-understand, down-to-earth style she's known for, Dr. Peg clearly communicates fundamental principles and strategies for change and personal transformation. Read Do Something Different for a Change today and have a better tomorrow. Go to drpegradio.com slash books to purchase your copy today. Studies show that safety greatly impacts student learning and a teacher's ability to do what they do best. Be it broken furniture, a leaking roof, or more serious threat of violence, the 21st Century Safe School by School Specialty addresses school safety from the emotional, social, and physical perspective. Don't wait another moment. Call 877-878-5800 or visit SSIGuardian.com. 
All right, welcome back, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and my guest today is Mr. Frank DeAngelis, retired principal of Columbine High School. Thanks so much, Frank, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And how can listeners connect with you? I know, know you do a lot of public speaking if someone wanted to invite you out, or you do consult with Jefferson County Public Schools in their security department. How can they get in touch with they you? They can get in contact with me. My email is uh, frankdeangelis, the number one at yahoo.com. Okay, excellent. And I'll have a link to you as well from my website, drpegradio.com. And if you'd like to share this interview with a friend, or if you missed uh, any episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, you can check out the program archives at drpegradio.com. And Frank, we were talking about um, how normal, in fact, uh, the two assailants seemed right prior to the attack, uh, going to prom and being good students. And you wanted to talk about just uh, when we see something, say something. That's our homeland security um, mantra and uh, some of the things that we can be on the lookout for uh, that you wanted to talk about. Well, I think it's so important. And if we look at some of the other tragic events that happened, Virginia Tech, uh, the shooter made reference to Columbine High School. Mm. The shooter at uh, Sandy Hook made reference to Columbine High School. And I think there's been 74 instances where p- potential shooters of schools or actual shooters at carried out their plan made reference to Columbine High School so when I go out and talk to people and do some consulting that's a red flag if the kids are infatuated with the Columbine too Mm -hmm. and many to many they're cult heroes and it worries me a little bit because we have a generation now that weren't even born when Columbine Mm. happened but they're still making reference to the two from an event that occurred 19 years ago. Well and the FBI has made recommendations that we avoid uh, glorifying any of these tragic instances that uh, and I try to make a point to use the term assailant Um, there are certain certain words in, in in our language that kind of sensationalize it um, even even saying names, showing photos, and certainly we do that just to communicate and news outlets report the names and the facts, uh, but we want to be mindful, as you're saying, there's a whole generation of young people who weren't even alive when this happened, but yet it lives on uh, in, in a negative way. Uh, we're talking today for to uh, talk about lessons learned, and we're going to talk about hope and forgiveness and resilience and how to help those who are going through a, a, a tragedy today that you've got some experience with. So we're doing this uh, to, to be a benefit and to help others, not to glorify and perpetuate this kind of violence. Um, let's talk about, um, uh, you know, school is a place that kids can't avoid. <laughs> uh, you move to another school building to finish out the year. Um, others can choose where, whether or not they want to return after a tragedy occurs, for example, in a movie theater or a concert venue. Um, if, 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 in fact, it took me some time to even go to a movie again after the Aurora Theater shooting happened in our community here in Colorado. And it took me over a year or more to go back to the very Century 16 Theater. Um, but for students and teachers, you can't not go back to school, even if it's a different school, or even in the case of Columbine, um, the library, if I under, if understand, was remodeled. Uh, so talk about that variable of how that affects uh, teaching and learning, uh, not just for students, but we don't want to forget about teachers as well. They lost a colleague. They were traumatized as well in this, um, in this tragedy. How do you go back to school and how does that impact them to be back in a school building and in Columbine High School in particular? 
Well, and I'll tell you, you bring up very valuable points. Uh, when they returned to school, they had to relive what they experienced yeah. that very day. And on a personal note, um, as a principal, I went back probably six weeks before the teachers, and I was back in the building when construction workers were trying to get the school ready, and, you know, the sounds of pounding re-traumatized mm. me. And one of the things that helped me so much, uh, I got into counseling right away. Mm -hmm. And what my counselor told me, he said, Frank, when I first walked in that building, I could not walk 10 feet down the hallway before I envisioned the gunman uh, coming after me. I saw kids running. I saw kids screaming. And he said, Frank, if you don't replay that image in your mind, you're not ever going to be able to continue as principal. Mm. And he said, what you need to do is retape what's going on in your mind. He said, when you walk out of that, out of the your office into the hallway, you can no longer see that gunman. You need to envision Lauren Townsend playing volleyball mm. or Isaiah Schultz high-fiving me. He said, it's going to be difficult, but you need to retrain your mind that you need to be able to celebrate their lives. And, he, and that was the thing that allowed me to continue. And so one of the things that I tried to do then is share my experiences, what my counselors were telling mm -hmm. me, because... One of the most difficult things is when you tell people that they probably should seek help and a lot of people dig in and they didn't. And yeah. So I learned early on by simple comments and I'm not sure if you're having a hard time sleeping, if you're having nightmares, but I don't know if it'll help you, but I'm talking to someone and now all of a sudden it's, it's different than opposed to saying, boy, you're messed up, you better go talk to mm -hmm. someone. That's good because you're, you're by example um, sharing, here's, here's how you could be feeling, you're normalizing that that reaction to a tragic event, uh, it's outside our normal everyday lives. It, it's not abnormal to have a reaction to it, and it's not abnormal to be okay with it as well. And so talking about counseling, I read a quote in an article that was written about you and um, Columbine uh, that you talked about counseling before curriculum. So when students returned to school, um, you know, you only had a couple weeks left of school. This happened in the spring. And how do you just turn back to, you know, the history class or the math class that was happening the day before this happened, uh, but prioritizing the student's well-being? Well, that's so important, and I know um, I'm not an expert, but I know the brain was not functioning in the same manner it mm -hmm. had been prior to the 20th, and we shared that with teachers. And many teachers really had to learn how to reteach from the standpoint of instead of having students read, they actually read to the students. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was so important. And as I tell people, if kids do not feel safe, if kids are hungry, learning becomes secondary. And That's we right. needed to take care of their basic needs before we expected them to continue to do what they did. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and that's one of the things that I share. I think so many people feel that the sooner we get back to doing what we we're doing prior to, we're going to forget about what happened on that horrific day, and that's not how it happens. Right, right. And so what, what advice would you give to principals, other school administrators, teachers who have experienced targeted violence at their school? And again, it's happening. Um, it's unfolding. We're seeing the headlines all too frequently. Um, some of the smaller, less obvious things that they might not think of, that, but that might make a difference that only someone like you who's been through this would understand. And you mentioned already, you know, um, balloons and camouflage and the meals that you were serving that day. But even, you know, the bell schedule 
that was happening that day, it's that's the same schedule that's going to happen going forward that could trigger. So what kind of recommendations, even on those little things, would you make? Well, you try to anticipate what's going to happen, but unfortunately some things happen unexpectedly. And what I shared with the Florida people, uh, check with their fire department, because if that fire alarm goes off, mm. that is going to set off uh, a community of people that were re-traumatized mm -hmm. because of that sound. Yeah. You know, simple things like helicopters flying over mm. is going to re-traumatize, and it's these little things. But I think the important thing is giving people the support that they need, because I remember teachers confronting or meeting with teachers mm -hmm. saying, what do we do? Yeah. And I said, this is a learning thing, but you try to do as much as you can to give them the support they need, and then hopefully you can have open communications with various groups. We were so fortunate to be able to work closely with the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. And one of the things that they were able to do is share when certain information was going to be released. Because what ends up happening, if people in your community are caught by surprise and you're dealing with the aftermath, and so you try to prepare, not that it's going to take away the information is going to be given, but if you can prepare, saying within the next 24 hours, the police are going to release some information, mm. and mm -hmm. if you're, and then give the parents uh, information to do if their kids are struggling, teachers the information, and it's trying to stay a step ahead of what's going to appear next. Right, that's good. And even back to my student who was there, and the the, the weather report kind of triggered her because of this odd connection between the trench coats and rain, even though it was a sunny day, her asking me, let me know in advance if you're aware of a fire drill or we, we or you know, any kind of um, uh, drills and, and loud noises, bells, that kind of thing, because that was gonna uh, trigger her. So that advance notice would be something that, that others can learn from. Uh, now, how, what kind of advice can you offer on how to deal with some of the school rituals, um, spring rituals in particular, like prom and graduation, because that was kind of the timing. You had already had prom, um, but what about graduation? And for Parkland, Florida, that's still coming, the prom, graduation, senior cutout day, if they still have that. They still do, senior ditch day, <laughs> yeah, that goes way ditch, back, ditch day, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the conversation that I'm having uh, with the principal, Ty Thompson, from um, Parkland, and I, I'm also carrying on a conversation with Patricia Greer, who was the principal at Marshall, Marshall County mm. High School in Kentucky. And I think as time goes on, we need to check periodically to see what events are going to trigger certain things. Mm -hmm. And like you're stating, I think prom is going to pr trigger some things, and then graduation. Mm. And how do you recognize those kids? And you know, for us, uh, we had a little over a month, and the two graduates in the class of 99 was Lauren Townsend and Isaiah Scholes. Mm. And we invited both parents. Uh, they came up and received a diploma mm -hmm. and a cap and gown for their children, but you have to prepare them. and. You know, and these are things that we look at, and they're already starting to ask, well, what did you do at the one-year anniversary? And mm -hmm. I said, well, let's worry. Let's get you through the first couple of months yeah. and first three months. But these are all key points mm -hmm. that you kind of need to look ahead to see. Absolutely. And you said earlier you have to redefine normal. And so uh, really, what are, you, what are you sharing with these administrators and teachers on how do you redefine what's normal? Well, you know, and the thing that's real interesting is each community is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And a prime example, um, I get a phone call from the people at Sandy Hook saying, Frank, should we go back into the existing building? Because you did. Mm. And I said, I did not make that decision alone. You know, we had a conversation with the families who lost their kids. 
uh, the injured faculty, it wasn't a decision I made, and I can't live here in Colorado and tell you what to do. Right. I said, you need to find out, because your community's different, and each community's different, but get input. Mm-hmm. But I can share some of the things that we did. You know, going back into that building was tough, and we did not go back into the library because that's where a majority were killed. So we built a new library that helped but, you know, certain things you never think about, even the color of mm. carpet or the color of walls can have an impact on uh, the students that return and the staff that returns. Right. right. And so those triggers. And, again, that's why education on uh, recovery from trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm always quick to remind folks that not everyone who goes through a tragedy or a tra- traumatic experience develops PTSD. Many people are resilient and do bounce back. But training and recognizing the signs that someone has been traumatized, they do have signs of PTSD, and how to get them the appropriate help and support is so uh, critically important. Uh, you know, we all heard the motto, we are Columbine. Um, what, what does that mean to you, and, and how can um, other schools that have gone through a tragedy kind of embrace the spirit of, of what that meant? It, it's so important, and everybody thought that we came up with that motto prior to, or right before the tragedy or after, and it did not. It, okay. it actually started back in about 1989. Okay. I was an assistant football coach, and a dear friend of mine, Ivory Moore, uh, will be retiring this year from Columbine. We wanted to uh, psych out our team to get ready for a big game, and he said, I want to try something. And so we did it, and we won the game, but I just remember that feeling of doing that just with 50 football players. And so when I became principal in 1996, I said, Mr. Morty, remember what we did against Pomona? He said, yeah. I said, I want to start a tradition here at Columbine. My first assembly, we did it, and it continued, mm. not knowing oh. that three years later, the impact it was going to have of bringing us together. Mm. We are Columbine. We are family. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what, um, you know, there's going to be days in which negativity may set in, but we're not going to allow that to define mm-hmm. us. And Outstanding. So. Well, I'm speaking with Frank DeAngelis, former principal, retired principal of Columbine High School. And again, our show is pre-recorded, but you can leave a comment on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Dr. Pegg. And again, Frank, we focus a lot on the students, and of course that's so important. Um, but what about the teachers? Uh, I heard a, um, a talk presented by um, uh, uh, the police chief that was involved with um, the Aurora Theater shooting and how he talked about how his officers were bringing injured people out of the, uh, uh, the theater complex in their, in their police vehicles because they couldn't get the ambulances in there fast enough. And how, of course, again, just like we're talking about, some of them did just fine with that. They were resilient. They bounced back and got back to work just fine, no issues. But some of his officers struggled with that. And he, he recognized the signs and had to ask some of them to take some time and get some help. And so it's easy to focus on victims, and especially when they're children and your students. Uh, but what things you talked about substitutes being available for the teachers if they were having a rough time uh, but over over time how how have the teachers coped with the tragedy and uh, what kinds of supports have been in place with them over the years what well, was real interesting right after Columbine I received a phone call from Bill Bond who was a principal at Heath High School in Paducah And he said, Frank, I just want to share something with you. Be prepared. He said, within four years after that last class Mm -hmm. graduates, you're going to see a turnover. And Mm -hmm. I said, that doesn't happen at Columbine, you know, where the rebels, once a rebel, always a rebel. But he 
really made a lot of sense. I didn't anticipate the impact of returning to that building had mm-hmm. on teachers. And a majority of our teachers out of 150 staff members, actually, which includes classified or secretaries, uh, facility people, out of 150, most stayed on mm-hmm. until 2002. And then we lost about 50 percent. Wow. And some retired early and others went to other schools. But I think what we tried to do is help them along. And what we did see, some of the teachers who did leave struggled because they were out there isolated. It was tough for us, but we had each other. On bad mm-hmm. days, we, we rallied around each other. But we tried to provide as much support. And I think just as the police chief uh, said in Aurora, you had, I had to look for some people that day after day, if their recovery did not occur, then we had to look at some taking some time off for a different placement because mm-hmm. we wanted to do what was in the best interest of the students, or excuse me, the teachers. And if the teachers could not perform, then it was going to affect our students, Absolutely. and we needed to make sure we took care of them. Yeah, and so it really is having an eye for all those involved. I've, I've had Lisa Hamp as a, a guest on my show, and you know Lisa. Uh, she's a survivor of Virginia Tech, and she's what she refers to as a, a non-physically injured survivor. So she had no physical injuries and walked away with her life, and yet it did take a toll. And so we need to look at not just students, um, but any um, faculty, staff member at a school that that goes through this type of tragedy and trauma. Well, again, my guest is Frank DeAngelis, a retired principal of Columbine High School. And when we return, we'll talk about how Frank is able to hold on to help, uh, excuse me, hold on to hope, and what role um, forgiveness plays in healing. Stay with us. We'll be back. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional being of every student, teacher, and school employee. From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Do you ever make changes, but after a few days, weeks, or even months, you slip back into your old behaviors and patterns? If you want something different, you've got to do something different. Yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want. Why? Because change is hard, it's scary, and it comes at a cost. If you're ready for change, join me for a one-day, do something different for a change, personal transformation retreat. In this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Contact me today to schedule your own private VIP, do something different for a change, personal transformation retreat. Go to drpegradio.com retreat.
Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and this is Living Well with Dr. Peg. And I've been speaking with Frank DeAngelis, the retired principal of Columbine High School. And if you'd like to connect with Frank DeAngelis or share this interview with a friend, go to drpegradio.com for the program archives. And so, Frank, thank you so much for sharing uh, such important information. We're talking about lessons learned and um, based on your experience at Columbine, how you've been helping other um, survivors and administrators, educators, uh, helping them help themselves and the students, because we don't want to forget about the educators, who, of course, their first concern is the students, but they themselves are also uh, were in harm's way, uh, just as you were. Uh, by the grace of God, your life was spared, and so uh, spared for a purpose, right? That's exactly right. And I was really struggling, you know, and I'm cradle Catholic, uh, raised my parents, helped shape who I am today through my values, which included religion being a major part of my life. But as I was sitting at my brother's house that night, because I couldn't go back to my house, the police were concerned that there still may be mm -hmm. threats on me. And I'm sitting there and I started questioning my faith a little bit, mm -hmm. saying, you know, how could a God allow this to happen? And I didn't feel good about feeling the way I was feeling. And it was two days later, Father Ken Leone, who was a pastor down at St. Francis Cabrini, where I had been a member of the parish for 20 years, said, Frank, you need to come down to the church. And I said, Father, I don't have time. Mm -hmm. He said, Frank, you need to come to the church. So I went down, and there were about 1,200 people in the sacristy, and he brought me up to the altar along with some students who had been uh, part of the youth group there. And, you know, he told me that, he had him reach out and had him pray over me, and then he whispered something in my ear that really changed my life. He said, Frank, you were spared for a reason. Now you need to rebuild that community. And he said, in our lives, we have to live by faith and not by sight, mm -hmm. and God's got a plan. And he said, so many times, difficulties are really blessings in disguise. And he said, you could have the best laid out plan, but God is going to determine your course. That's right. Well, and, and people always ask, how, how could a good God, you know, allow such horrible things to happen? And I remind folks that we do live in a fallen, sinful world, and there is evil out there. And it's, you know, the grace of God that we do survive and that he can take all things and, and work them together for our good. Uh, he weeps with us as well at the loss of those 13 lives and the lives of the assailants as well. And so um, it's not that he's, he caused these horrible things. He's with us through them, and we do live in an evil, fallen world, and yet he can turn it, this into something beautiful. And that's part of what you're doing today and part of why we're doing this interview today. Uh, what role do forgiveness and, and love really play in the healing that you've experienced and the resilience that you've seen your school community go through? The forgiveness piece is huge. In my own personal life, I had so much hatred pent up in my heart and anger, and I realized if I was gonna rebuild that community, I could not walk back in that school with that heavy heart of hate. And a dear friend of mine shared something with me, and he said, Frank, you can hate the sin, but not the sinner, love the sinner. And I had to do that, mm -hmm. and I had to offer forgiveness, because I think back, you know, to Jesus. I mean, he forgave those who did what they did to him. And I said, who am I not to forgive? And it was Patrick Ireland, one of the boys who was critically injured. And he said, Mr. D, he said, I'm not a victim, I'm a victor. And he said, I could not start healing until I forgave. Mm -hmm. Now, in a lot of families um, have a hard time with that. And mm -hmm. I would never judge anyone because I never lost a child like that. But for me to continue to be the principal and continue to fulfill that 
request to be there until we got back to where we needed to be, I had to offer forgiveness mm-hmm. and love. Absolutely. And again, we don't judge people at all for being unable to forgive. We understand that. I mean, that seems like it's our natural inclination is why we were, are commanded to forgive because we have to be commanded. It doesn't come naturally uh, for, for any of us, really. Uh, so in light of everything that you've been through and experienced and everything happening in our world today in schools and, and in every venue, it seems, where, you know, where we worship, where we play, where we entertain ourselves, where we go to school, where we work, these tragedies are happening. How do we hold on to hope? I got to believe that, you know, I can't continue to be helpless or hopeless and what I'm doing today until I can no longer walk or talk again, I'm doing in, in memory of the 13 who lost their lives at Columbine and all who have lost their lives to school violence. I can't give up hope. And the thing that we can't, rem- the thing we got to remember is we continue to hear about these school shootings, but how many have been stopped because of things we have in place? Mm-hmm. And we got to continue to evaluate what we're doing, continue to be involved. And there's not one quick fix. And when people ask me, what are you going to do? I said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do as parents? What are we going to do as community members? What are we going to do with schools, law enforcement? Because one life, another life lost is one too many Mm because our kids are our most precious commodity. That's right. And I read um, an article written about you where you said you have been able to turn anger to forgiveness and sadness to hope and take the single worst day of your life and make it a call for change. Uh, and that you're often telling teens that it starts with you. What are you going to do to make a difference? Um, talk about the safety features or changes, um, procedures, protocols that were implemented at Columbine in the aftermath. We have a mutual uh, friend and associate, uh, Chief Todd Evans, who has shared with me how he walked the halls of Columbine with you uh, after uh, the tragedy. and. Uh, you have a little wooden box <laughs> on the wall that that was for suggestions or you know information that students wanted to share and he was saying how um in that box were just as many things saying doing a great job mr d we love you mr d um, but talk about the, some of the safety features that being one of them something as simple as a wooden box on a wall for students to share their concerns. Right. We had an anonymous tip box, and if they did put their names down, uh, I would call them in my office and carry on a conversation. But something even more importantly in the state of Colorado is we have Safe to Tell. That's right. Which is uh, run by the Attorney General Office, Cynthia Kaufman's office, which is a 24-7 anonymous mm-hmm. tip line. So students have that opportunity. And as you pointed out earlier, say something or see something, say something. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. But in Columbine, we have cameras. Uh, surveillance cameras in there that are monitored uh, so we can see if there are people in the building that should not be in. Uh, We have two entrances that are open to the public, but people have to go through the main office. They do not have direct access in. And and the student entrance, uh, we also have security down there. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most important things, and I'm a strong proponent, is of school resource officers Mm -hmm. being in the building. And we've seen just recently how they have saved life. Mm And so I think it's very important to have those types of things. But the thing that's so difficult, I think, is we have to have programs that it's hard to measure the impact that they're having. We can see if there's a camera in the building. We can see that it's concrete. But programs, whether they be anti-bullying or programs that identify kids that need help. And what really worries me, because we hear so much about 
tougher gun laws, but we also hear programs where they're talking about cutting mental health, which I think would be a grave mistake because kids are crying out for help. That's right. And then I think the other thing that is so prevalent right now that wasn't necessarily as important or as relevant in kids' lives is social media. Mm -hmm. And I think adults, parents, teachers, we need to make sure that we know what these kids are doing with their social media because so many times these kids are broadcasting just like the killer or the uh, assailant from uh, Florida. Mm -hmm. He was broadcasting, and to me, he was crying out for help. And unfortunately, uh, we didn't follow some of his... Mm-hmm. And so let's let's kind of explore that a little bit more. Um, you had a pretty low-tech uh, version of Safe to Tell with that box, an anonymous tip box. And uh, listeners can go to safetotell.com, and it's the number two, if they want to learn more about that program in Colorado. Um, but uh, at the time that this show is being recorded, the Secret Service has just completed a, rec- a report, released a report for 2017 about the characteristics of assailants in mass attacks. And they uh, reported that 64% had mental health issues, nearly half were motivated by personal grievances, and more than three-quarters of the assailants engaged in suspicious communications or conduct that raised concerns from others in advance of the assaults. And so really, um, mental health, uh, grievances, and concerning behavior are correlated, and we want to be careful not to confuse correlation with causation, but certainly these are characteristics of these assailants. Um, And if we can put, as you're saying, programs in place that help us learn more about uh, mental health problems and signs of mental health uh, concerns. Uh, if we can um, learn more about how to help students and people in general resolve grievances and problem solve in an effective way, and if we can um, receive training on recognizing signs of concerning behavior, um, what psychologists refer to as leakage, that very often, even if a person is not threatening uh, their target, Uh, They're leaking, so to speak, uh, the fact that they have a grievance, that they've started researching a violent act, that they're planning and making preparations. That leaks out. It's observable. And if we can have better training, more effective training around those issues, we might be able to prevent um, of school violence and, and other forms of targeted violence um, before we even have to worry about is there an armed person on the property. We've prevented it before they've even moved further down that path to violence. And those are excellent points that you bring up. And what I worry about, I know in my last few years as principal, we saw more cyberbullying taking place. Mm. And I think I also believe that we see a higher percentage of teenage suicides, and I think there's mm-hmm. a correlation yes. because of social media and students taking their own lives because they feel once something goes viral, their life is ruined, and we need to provide the support saying, if we do make mistakes, there's support there to help you. But mm-hmm. I think that's where parents need to be involved in adults. And so many times, and if I could plead to the parents out there, so many times when their kids become high school students, they feel they need to give them more freedom and they don't need to be as involved. And I really Mm. urge them to be involved in their kid's life because kids want boundaries. And I think as parents, it's our responsibility to provide those boundaries Mm -hmm. for the kids. Sure. And to give them appropriate um, freedoms and responsibility without just totally letting them be off on their own without eyes on them on a very regular basis. My pastor has, um, you know, shared kind of tongue in cheek, but in all seriousness, 
you know, when his kids were teenagers and they'd come home, he looked them up and down, you know, he gave them the once over and really kind of studied them when they came in. How do they look? Do they have a, a scent of, you know, cigarettes or alcohol or whatever on them? We can't just let them go off into their room, close the door and not come out until the next morning with the whole world in the palm of their hands in the form of a, a cell phone, a smartphone. I, I agree. And I had some parents call me and say, Frank, can you tell my daughter she can't wear that to school? And I said, you're the parent. She said, well, they may not like me. And I said, you need to be a parent. It's not a matter of liking or disliking. You need to set boundaries for kids. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, someone shared something with me that was so relevant. I think in our society today, these kids are facing mountains to climb. And what we want to do as adults or parents is move the mountains as opposed to giving them the skills to scale the mountain. Mm -hmm. Well put, very well put. And so looking at um, social media, cyberbullying, I've had... um, um, Clayton Cranford on my program, and he, he calls himself the cyber safety cop, and he's talked a lot about cyber safety for our children. But we know that bullying is um, the perception of, um, of feeling persecuted, having uh, felt bullied is uh, an, an, a motive in, um, in school attacks. And so really um, getting a handle on that, on bullying prevention and the whole realm of cyber safety is so critically important today, as you're saying. Well, it's important um, uh, for students uh, to reach out to other students they don't know, you've been quoted as saying, uh, to others who may seem different or lonely and to foster a school where everyone belongs, an environment of inclusion. And so looking in the context of bullying prevention, um, including cyberbullying, how important is it to create that environment of inclusion and practically how do we do that? And I tried, and it was one of the most difficult things for me because I was naive. I would walk down the halls at Columbine, and kids would say, you know, we're Columbine Ripples, we're family. But I was missing a portion of the population at Columbine, and where I found those kids were outside at the smoking pit where they were smoking cigarettes or Mm -hmm. at the skate park or at the food court. And I'd go up to those kids, and they were shocked to see me, and they said, do you even know who we are? Unfortunately, I knew Mm -hmm. their names. Mm -hmm. And they were very blunt. And I said, bring all the people who are feeling the way that you feel in the auditorium. I'm going to meet with you. Mm-hmm. And there was about 100 kids, and they laid into me. Is just this a, before or after the attack? After uh, the after. attack. Mm-hmm. And they were very blunt. Mm-hmm. It's something I didn't want to hear, but I needed to hear. And they said, we don't fit into the school mm-hmm. you call Columbine. Mm-hmm. And there's kids here that could care less if we walk back in. And mm-hmm. so I did an assembly, mm-hmm. and I told the kids that I wanted them to come, and they didn't even know where the gymnasium was. And they said, why would we show up? It doesn't appeal to us. And I said, you show up at the next assembly. So I did this activity in which I had carabiners or chain links, and I said each of them represented a link at Columbine High School. And I just told them how important they were, and we all have differences but we can all get along, and we have that chain. It still hangs at Columbine High School. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's little things like that to go out of your way to make sure that you include them. Right. So it's one thing to have a slogan, we are Columbine, we're a family, but it is the actual behaviors uh, that get executed every day, and then how are those received by the students who don't feel like they're part of the family? That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And so you recommend even the little things like smiling at someone new or introducing yourself to someone you don't know and checking on younger students. 
Very important. I was just recently in Covington, Georgia, and one of the things that I asked them to do is I, they were talking about the 17 who lost their lives in uh, Florida and the 13 at Columbine. I said, that equals 30. Mm. And what I want you to do between now, which was Tuesday, and the end of the spring, or before you go on spring break, I want you to go talk to 30 kids or smile or introduce yourself. And I said, that's so important because many of you have friends, and on the weekends, you've got a social group. So a lot of these kids that leave on Friday don't have anyone, mm-hmm. and you need to reach out to them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so important is perspective-taking and empathy, and psychologists are really studying that today as a link to so many different things in our society and um, the quality of our our life and our social interactions with one another. Um, How would you say things in your world are different today, post-Columbine? Boy, you take each day Mm -hmm. for what it is, and I think there's more awareness. Uh, I think at Columbine High School, there's more tolerance. Uh, We learned how to give generously and receive graciously. And the thing that I really want to make sure is that we never give up hope. Mm-hmm. And that, that is so important to me. Until the day I die, I'm going to continue to go out and speak because I believe in what we're doing. And what those kids are doing in Parkland, Florida, it's, they're offering motivation and inter- uh, so much motivation and inspiration for us because they're the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've chosen to forgive and spread love and hope and to start what you believe is a chain reaction of positive change and urge students to choose hope and kindness and reach out to each other with acceptance and love. Frank DeAngelis, thank you so much for being my guest on the program today. Thank you for having me. Well, my guest has been Frank DeAngelis, and I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, reminding you to live well. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Peg. For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.